Let's turn to our message today, and um, I'm kind of doing it all this morning, uh, though I'm not going to lead worship, I'm not going to stay up for singing. <laughs> but uh, it's okay. It's, uh, it's, it's okay. Um, you know, if you're new here again this morning, um, what we do in the middle part of our service is just we open the Bible and we try to make sense of it and then try to apply it to our contemporary lives. We believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. We believe it's altogether trustworthy and true in everything that it affirms. And so we spend the bulk of our time here in the middle of our service uh, opening the Bible up and trying to understand what it meant to its original audience and then what it means to us today. And we like to preach through the Old Testament and then a gospel and then into the New Testament. And this summer we are planted in the Old Testament. This is our third in a series of messages from 2 Kings called The Long Road to Exile. In uh, my wife and I's trip to Paris earlier this summer, one of the most memorable events happened in a small park where we lunched awaiting the beginning of a bike tour. We were with our friends, many of you know them, Terry and Kelly Lewis. And if you know Terry, he is an amazing conversationalist. He will talk to anybody, anywhere. So while we were eating, he strikes up a conversation with the grandfather, and I say grandfather because he had his son with him there in the park, uh, and he was sitting on a bench and welcomed Terry and Kelly to sit with him. Louise and I were observers of all this. And um, at one point in the conversation, Terry asked him, now we know the Eiffel Tower is close by, but which direction is it in? And the grandfather just looked at him and smiled, and he pointed uh, above and beyond where Terry was sitting. And he said, it's right there. And we all turned around, and there it was. <laughs> the top third of the tower through, uh, we could see it through some, the leaves and branches of some high trees. There it was. Terry turned back to the grandfather, so joyful, clearly moved by what he saw. And the grandfather, in response, got a little misty-eyed and said, I have lived in Paris all my life, and I feel sad that I will never see the Eiffel Tower the way you see it for the first time. He was reflecting on a reality that it had lost its wonder. He no longer sees it, so to speak. It did not move him here. And I share this story because it helps us understand the heart of God's people during the times of the kings. The love of God, the many kindnesses of God, his promises to them no longer moved them. They were no longer felt in their heart. The miracles that God did at the Exodus to save them, they had lost their wonder. So. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings. With that insight about the people, turn to 2 Kings. It's page 311 in the Chair Bible. And today we're going to look at chapter 5. Now, my section is much longer than I was assigned to preach on, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But I have taught on 6 and 7 previously, 
Chapter 6 tells the story of floating axe heads, a gift of spiritual sight, and ends with a lesson on loving your enemies. Chapter 7 tells the story of desperate times, desperate people, and desperate kings. It's about belief and unbelief when everything seems lost. And it concludes with this remarkable story of four diseased men who make a discovery and then resolve not to keep the good news to themselves. It's definitely worth your time to go back and to reread. But for chapter five for today, I've broken this chapter down into three sections. And what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna read the first two, we'll read them together, or I'll read them, and I'm gonna read down through verse 14. Will you stand, please, for God's word as I read? 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought this letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. And we come in awe and we come in reverence and we come seeking to understand who you are 
seeking to understand, Father, how today your word speaks to us and makes sense of our lives and gives us purpose and gives us guidance for everything we face and for all that we need to live meaningfully and to live with purpose in this world. Oh God, today, may we not walk away this morning without receiving every gift that you long and desire and ache to give us. Father, that we might be better equipped and better, um, uh, better trained and ready and prepared to, lo to love, to live, to speak. Father, to do all of your will. We agree and we pray the prayer that Jesus instructed us to pray. Oh God, may your will be done. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. All right. Let's first break down verses 1 through 7. It's full of surprises. Here's this man, Naaman, highly thought of, military hero, intimate with the king of Syria. But Syria is an enemy of Israel, and yet it says the Lord gave him victory. That's strange. What does that mean? Uh, it's the narrator's way of telling us that God is in control of history. Big things, little things, he's in control. It's also a hint of how upside down things are. This man, Naaman, a Gentile, he comes to believe in God, while Israel, God's people, has rejected him. And adding to this oddity, Syria is engaged in skirmishes and carrying out raids on the borders of Israel. And this little or young servant girl who's helping out Mrs. Naaman shows up in the story by virtue of what? Of one of those raids. It is her, unnamed, who tells Naaman's wife, about this prophet in Israel. She, unlike most of the nation, despite her circumstances, expresses faith in God. It's remarkable. We don't have details, but we're left to wonder what trauma has she endured? Are her parents dead or alive? Yet here she is expressing faith in Yahweh and showing kindness to Naaman. So Naaman decides, why not try? And he asks permission from his boss, the Syrian king. The king likes Naaman, and he takes another surprising step and writes a letter of recommendation to the king of Israel. Right? I mean, this is just a head-scratcher. Imagine Putin writing to Joe Biden to receive a highly thought-of general from Russia to receive medical care in the United States. How does that happen? God wants us to see that he is in control. So Naaman prepares for his journey. He arranges gifts, all these extravagant gifts to the prophet. Now the king of Israel, for his part, Jehoram, is shocked at this letter, right? He's shocked. In his spiritual apostasy, he has no category for this ask. He has no category 
in the mind, in his mind, that God could actually heal Naaman. His vision is small, suspicion blinds him, and even this act with good intent is flipped upside down because of his paranoia. All right? So that's verses 1 through 7. Now verses 8 through 14. We witness our next surprise. Elisha's greeting of Naaman, or shall we say lack of greeting. Now again, try to picture this. What a missed opportunity on Elisha's part, right? My goodness, what a missed opportunity for influence. Here's a foreign leader at your doorstep, this, this Gentile pagan leader. I mean, where's the pomp and circumstance? Where are the banquets? Where's the red carpet? Where are the photo ops? I mean, Elisha does not even personally greet him. What offense that is. But sends a message through one of his lackeys or one of his servants. And then the message itself, go wash yourself in the Jordan, which was not close by. I mean, Naaman came to Israel with a vision in his mind. There's going to be a great display of power, perhaps a magic show. Um, that's the way the pagan priests do it back where I'm from. And I think in the mindset of Elisha here, for his part, I think Naaman, I think he wants Naaman to see that it is not the hocus pocus power of the prophet, the man, but rather it's God who does the healing. Well, Naaman's expectation was blown up and he gets angry. Uh, now, before you judge Naaman too harshly, right? What do we do when our prayers aren't answered in the way that we expect, right? We get angry too. Now the Jordan for itself, it's a dirty, muddy river in the lowlands. I mean, imagine dipping yourself in the Olentangy seven times. That's the, that's the picture here. The rivers back home in Damascus were mountain rivers, beautiful and clear. Now, here again, there are nameless, unknown servants that enter into this drama. Naaman, they say, the prophet has asked you to do a very simple thing. Why not give it a try? What do you have to lose? And now here we see Naaman's character. He's been humbled, no official greeting, no presence with the great prophet, no thunder and lightning, only dipping yourself in a disgusting river. But he's humble. He listens to his servants. And unlike the king of Israel, his anger does not completely blind him. I mean, isn't this the same dynamic with the gospel message today? The gospel is incredibly simple. That is why God says he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Secular philosophy wants the pathway to God to be intellectually complex. Why? In order to justify the deep intellect needed in their estimation to figure out the universal's riddles. 
Religion wants a pathway to heaven to be a bridge we can climb that demonstrates, why? So that it demonstrates the superiority of our moral virtue or that of our culture or that of our way of life. And like today, the gospel message is rejected because it lacks simplicity. So Naaman at first rejects the gospel message. It is so simple. Children can understand it. It is a simple invitation to believe in Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus, the wisdom of God. Jesus, the power of God. That simplicity defies our intellectual pride and our moral pride. And that's one of the big lessons here. Okay, that's verses 8 through 14. Now, let's go to the latter half now of the narrative. Look at verses 15 and 16, and this will be on the screen. Verse 15. Then Naaman returned to the man of God. He comes back. He and all his company... And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. This is cool, isn't it? Naaman just doesn't fly back home, a healed man. He goes back to the prophet. Again, remember, not a, not a short distance. And he makes a confession of faith, a significant expression of belief. This God is not a tribal or regional God. No, this God, Yahweh, is the universal one God over all the earth. Naaman knows now this God cannot be bought off with a few nice designer shoes or suits. And so now the gifts come from a place of gratitude. But Elisha still refuses. He wants to ensure that to name that both he and God operate differently than the pagan priests and pagan gods. You know, a confession of faith, friends, is so vital. It's so vital to speak out loud your faith with your mouth, to tell others our faith is meant to be public. It's not only a private decision. That is one reason why baptism, which we witnessed last week, why it's so important. Now something really, well, the whole thing's been interesting, but now comes something Complex, Verse 15. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, though, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in that house, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now, is that a little perplexing? What's going on here? Well, one thing, Naaman has been sensitized. Something shifted in his heart. He has encountered the one real God, and his worship is transformed. 
Now, in his tradition, this meant a new altar made from the soil of Israel's land. Jesus' teaching about worship not being tied to a place has not yet come. But he wondered, what would I do when required to enter into the ritual idol worship with the king of Syria on my arm? As chief advisor to the king, that's his job description. Elisha, would I be compromising? You know, it's an immediate dilemma. And it is similar to the new Christian who might need to end a relationship or even a career because following Jesus calls for ultimate allegiance, loving him above everything and everyone. Elisha says, go in peace. What does that mean? That it was okay to worship the God of Rain and storm, thunder and lightning, that's hard to imagine. I don't think that's what Elisha is saying here. That would go against the very first commandment to worship the Lord your God and have no other gods before him. Here's a second, another option. Was Naaman's question more about his duty to the king? Could he fulfill his duty in a place of idol worship. When the king would bow, resting on his arm, Naaman would of physical necessity need to bow with him. So is that the thrust of his question? Is it more about showing reverence to the king? I think that's a very possible option. Here's another option. Was Elisha's go in peace not a directive one way or the other, but was it a way of saying, I'm not sure, but God will help you figure it out. In other words, Naaman, there's going to be lots of big and little dilemmas along the way, but the Holy Spirit will guide you. Now, I'm not sure that's the answer either, but that does relate to us, doesn't it? You know, this option reminds me of a conversation I had with a Chinese Christian professor at the University of Hong Kong. Very well-known professor, actually known all over the country, regarded as an a, 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 a expert and leader in his field. And he had opened up his home to our small mission team. And at breakfast, he posed an incredibly difficult question to us. This professor, through introductory Bible studies on Friday nights that he had led over several years, had led about 100 Chinese postdoc students to Jesus. These are some of China's best and brightest. And he told us of their dilemma. When they return to China, they want to influence others for Jesus. And as a college professor, as it is here, it's an amazing platform. But when they apply for a professorship, they must sign statements of allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. What do they do? They have worked for this their entire life. Their parents have put all their hope in them. In that system, the honor and approval of the family is hugely important. The parents have financed, sacrificed greatly for a very expensive education, and the parents will depend financially on them in their elderly years. And he looks at me, 
this distinguished professor as a pastor, and he says, what shall I tell them? What is the right thing? There are other dilemmas that you face, I know, in counseling you, some small, some big. Do you attend a family member's same-sex wedding? What do you do? Or when your confused, troubled niece, whom you have known for years, transitions to a young man because her peers are doing it and changes her name, and she asks you directly to call her by that new name, what will you do? What does it mean to my relationship with God if I honor her request? What does it mean to my relationship with her if I don't? What is the relationship in God's economy between truth and kindness? Or another, at what point do I call out the deceptive business practices at my workplace? Big dilemmas, small dilemmas, moral dilemmas because we care as Christians about doing what honors and pleases God. Is this what Elisha means when he says, go in peace? <laughs> I, I'm not sure of the answer. At first glance, I like the option that Naaman is describing a duty to the king that he must perform in a pagan temple. And Elisha saying, go in peace affirms that it is not a spiritual compromise. For me, that makes the most sense of the narrative. But again, we can't say conclusively. And indeed, this is a day, isn't it, where all of us need the Holy Spirit's guidance to know how to work through the many moral dilemmas that you're facing, that I'm facing, that we're facing in the time that we live in. Let's move on. And now we're going to encounter a darker side to this story. We've seen a lot of great things happen, right? But now we're going to encounter a darker side. Look at verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, who we met two weeks ago, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? You see something sinister is happening here. Notice he says, as the Lord lives. Gehazi is seemingly religious. He's Elisha's guy, just as Elisha was to Elijah. He was next in line. The mantle of prophet would fall to him. He has knowledge of God. He has an outline of God. But his knowledge of God does not prohibit him from financially benefiting even if he fudges the truth. Sound preposterous? The same reasoning is far too often occurring in the church today. You know, this attitude begins subtly, doesn't it? This attitude when leadership gets corrupted. The attitude begins very subtly with, I have sacrificed. I've been a good soldier for the cause. 
and I deserve something. As well, notice the tone of prejudice in Naaman's, in, in Gehazi's voice. That's Naaman the Syrian. He's not one of us. This guy's not even one of us. And God blesses him. All this reveals that Gehazi's heart has been left untouched by the love of God and by the grace of God. Look at verse 22. Gehazi says, hey, all is well. All is well, Naaman. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Hey, can you please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing? And Naaman said, oh, of course, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him. You can kind of picture her now, Gehazi. Oh, no, no, that's okay. No, don't really give it. Going through that typical Near Eastern back and forth. No, you don't like to give it. Oh, please, please take it. All the while knowing he's lying. And he laid them, Gehazi laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. Do you see here the devilish sequence? Entitlement gives birth to greed, and greed gives birth to deception. And do you feel the sadness and the tone of this passage? In a single act of corruption, Gehazi is undoing what Elisha did in separating this healing from its pagan counterparts. And again, before we judge too quickly, this is what we do as well when we seek to do God's work, but borrow from the world its ways and tactics. Verse 25. Gehazi went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, remember, we've already experienced the omniscience of God and God revealing things to Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept? Was it a time? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. You know, some deflections are as old as the mountains, right? When a person says, I went nowhere, that tells you all you need to know. I still remember those conversations with my kids when something bad was going down, and I asked, where have you been? Nowhere, Dad. Nowhere. <laughs> and I, this phrase is so striking, isn't it? Elisha, in expiration, says, was this a time? Gehazi. This is such a spiritually significant moment for Naaman to be anchored in the gospel truth. And here you are, making it seem like Yahweh is just like his pagan counterparts. Man. 
Was this a time when proclaiming the gospel of God's unconditional love, was this a time to pursue remuneration for it? And that's not all, and this is sobering. It reveals the condition of Gehazi's heart and the depth of his sin. You know, God's judgment is never in a vacuum. And we should recognize that Gehazi is symbolic of the nation of Israel at this time. So the skin disease that inflicted Naaman would inflict him and his descendants just like a physical illness can be hereditary, so this curse would inflict his family line. Though remember, as we learn from chapter 1, right? Remember, we learn from chapter 1 that grace, grace, right? Where there's great sin, there can be abounding grace. Grace can come in and lift that curse. But what we see here in real time and space is judgment. This is what Gehazi deserves. Gehazi, you thought you deserved wealth from God for all your service. You thought that God owed you. But God says to Gehazi, I'll show you that I'll show you every day by what you see on your hands, feet, and face, what you truly deserve for your sin. I mean, what all of us, right? What all of us, what all of us, what every one of us truly deserves for our sin. The story is filled with surprising grace, is it not? Upside down from what we expected, we had discovered surprising grace extended to a pagan military leader. He confesses his faith in Yahweh and gives him worship. And there are unlikely heroes, like the little girl serving, the little young girl serving Mrs. Naaman in her kitchen. Her faith did not waver under the trauma she experienced, and she loved despite the hurt and ethnic animosity. She played a key role in Naaman's healing and spiritual salvation. Same with Naaman's servants. Unlikely heroes. And finally, we see corrupted leaders in the life of Gehazi. He is an infamous counterpart, if you know the book of Acts, he's an infamous counterpart to Ananias and Sapphira of the New Testament, who also shaded the truth in order to appear model servants of Jesus while secretly keeping back wealth for themselves. Surprising grace, unlikely heroes, and corrupted leaders. So what can we take from this story? Let me mention two things. Here's the first. Number one, stay where you are planted. Stay where you are planted. What, what do I mean by this? Let me explain. Stay where you are planted. There is a principle in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7 about discerning God's will. And it says essentially that one should seek to stay where they have been planted. The young believers there that Paul was writing to in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, in, in Corinth, you see, they had wondered about their situation. They, had, they were new Christians. They were brand new Christians. 
and they wondered, should I do something different? Should I change my position in life? For example, I'm married to a non-Christian. What should I do with that? Now, Paul's general advice, with some nuance, with some exception, is stay where you are called. Stay where you are planted. God has called you there. And the perfect picture of this is this young girl. She is an unlikely hero, but she was what? At the right place, at the right time. God had planted her in that household. And she had suffered great losses. You know, one of the most powerful messages of the Bible is that our suffering can have an impact on others. It can have redemptive impact. It's not gratuitous. It has a purpose. You may question where you are planted. How can I be used by God? I'm in this dead end job 50 hours a week and it's trying to curtail how much I can share my faith or my job is all consuming or my studies are all consuming I can't serve God here or I spend many of you so it seems every waking hour of every waking day changing diapers cleaning spit up, negotiating disputes, or chasing little people to prevent loss of life or limb. (laughs) How can God use me? What's your circumstance? Part of the lesson of this passage is stay where you were planted. Fulfill the calling God has given you as a student, or a provider, or a mother, or a father. You never know how God will use you. Andrew Clavin is a popular novelist. He was raised in a non-practicing Jewish home. Clavin wrote a book called The Great Good Things, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And he writes about his journey saying, Jesus never appeared to me while I lay drunk in the gutter. And yet, looking back on my life, I see Christ beckoning to me at every turn. When I was a child, he was there in the kindness of a Christian babysitter and the magic of a Christmas Eve spent at her house. When I was a troubled young man contemplating suicide, he, Jesus, was in the voice of a Christian baseball player who gave a radio interview that inspired me on. You know, people along the way, without even knowing it, did not know the impact they were having, were being used by God. The lesson? Stay where you're planted. Don't just bide time until the real assignment comes. You're in the real assignment now. Be faithful to your calling today. Now, here's a second lesson, and there is a warning here. There's a warning here that what happened to Gehazi and the nation of Israel can happen to us. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, who I really like, points out that everything Naaman did, 
Everything Naaman did implicitly condemned Israel. He made a confession of faith that Yahweh was the one universal God, a confession that at this point in Israel's history elicited yawns or even scorn. Who else in Israel, as Naaman was, was determined to worship only Yahweh? Who else in Israel was as sensitive to the exclusive worship of only Yahweh? Ah, for Israel, hey, those other gods, those other idols, ah, they look pretty attractive. You know, our neighbors, they worship these other gods, and hey, they're pretty prosperous. They're doing quite well. That's quite alluring. Maybe we can mix our worship of Yahweh with some of these neighboring idols. Doesn't have to be exclusive. Naaman's newfound faith outpaces even the religious leaders of Israel, and certainly the king, who is supposed to be the primary spiritual leader. Naaman has been heard and healed. Naaman has received the blessings of God while Israel has been passed up. Sound nuts? It's exactly what Jesus said. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, as Jesus begins his ministry, humanly speaking, his ministry almost ended the first day. His ministry could have been one day long, be it not for the sovereignty of God. Luke 4, beginning in verse 27. These are the words of Jesus. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they, the Jewish audience, heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> I love that. Why were they so angry? Because God showed kindness to a Gentile? No. No. Because God passed them over. There were lepers in Israel in the days of Naaman. They were not healed. God passed them over and healed a Gentile. Entitlement made them so angry, enough to want to kill Jesus. Davis goes on to write this warning to the evangelical church. He writes, but isn't it a needed word, especially to privileged Christians who have long enjoyed the word of God? What is happening when a first-year college student with no church background, an alcoholic father, and a mother with a live-in boyfriend embraces Christ when a campus minister explains the gospel to him, while another student who has been raised in a Bible-preaching church and known the gospel nearly all her life stands aloof from it and seems to be unmoved by it? Is God again bypassing Israel and cleansing an Aramean? It should be enough to make the evangelical church tremble among her privileges. The lesson here stated in a sentence is never allow the gospel of Jesus to grow stale. 
Friends, when is the last time that the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, when is the last time it moved you, brought you to tears, or to your knees, or caused you to raise your hands in utter wonder, or look to heaven with a beaming face? Does the cross still bring wonder to you? Has the Spirit done a work in your life such that if you could see it for the first time, you know, that inability to see is what the grandfather in Paris was grieving, that inability to be moved, that inability to see. Friends, you see, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of renewal. It is a deepening work that makes old conceptions seem shallow. Renewal makes old truths new. It brings fresh winds. It awakens old bones. You know, in the course of feeling fresh wind, we should not feel ashamed when we think, man, did I ever really understand the cross? Have I ever really known Jesus or understood what he did for me? You see, such reflections, when it feels brand new for the first time, such reflections are the work of renewal. And that work deepens and penetrates the gospel in us to new levels of understanding and conviction. I remember personally a Faith Walkers conference. It's a, a conference that many of our uh, uh, church friends, other churches that we are connected to attend. Some years ago at that conference, God revealed to me personally at a new level that it was not just my sin in general, or it was not just the abstract sin of the world, but no, it was my personal sin that Jesus bore on his body. And not some sins a lifetime ago, no. No, but sins, sins where there were moments of excessive and unjust anger expressed at my children or there was unnecessarily quarreling with other Christian colleagues and Christian leaders, or the sin of intellectual pride, which I've been so guilty of. Those things, not general, not just the sins of the world. No, my, my stuff, my sins, he bore. And he did died for me. And those sins, those sins alone should send me to hell. Those sins alone means I should be on the cross experiencing the wrath of God. I bear the leprous marks that Gehazi did. You see, friends, without that renewal, with that staleness, when the gospel goes stale, we begin to go through the motions, and like Gehazi, we are no longer sensitive to entitlement, we're no longer sensitive to greed, and we're no longer sensitive to deception. We're entitled. And for us, other gods, lesser gods, money, sex, approval 
from others, they become our gods and we will sacrifice our ethics to get them. And we will bear prejudice in our hearts. So fixated we are on our own moral or cultural superiority. And so my admonition to myself and to all of us is let the Spirit do a fresh work in your life. You know, one of the signs of revival itself is that God through the Spirit makes the cross vivid again in our minds. To never ever let it grow old or let it grow stale. Ushers, you can come forward if you would. And you can begin to pass out or begin to release the rose and pass out for people to receive the elements. In our effort, in our heart, and one of the things that Jesus instituted so that the gospel message, the, the death of Jesus, the giving of his body, the, the loss of his blood, one of the reasons, one of the things he instituted was, was the breaking of bread, communion, taking the cup, taking the bread into our bodies, actually participating in the gospel. Unlike others, we do not believe that the bread and the juice actually become Jesus's body or blood, but nonetheless, they are symbols that we should be in reverence of, for they bring us back into encounter with Jesus, his death and his resurrection. You can take the symbols at any point in our service. We would only say to you that remember, to take these symbols, you need to be a follower of Jesus. And that's something you can do today in this moment. Remember how he said, it's a simple gospel. It's an invitation to believe in Christ crucified, Christ the wisdom of God, Christ the power of God. Let's respond in worship.